0: Welcome to the Journal of Southwest Radio Hour, produced by the University of Arizona Southwest Center. I'm Jeff Bannister. Today we're talking with Dr. David Seibert, Watershed Restoration Manager and co-founder of the Borderlands Restoration Network in Patagonia, Arizona. David is a cultural anthropologist who has worked in ecological restoration and education for more than 20 years, drawing from diverse fields of interest, hydrology, horticulture, Japanese garden design, firefighting and management, historiography, and social memory. He has collaborated with Hopi, Zuni, Navajo, and Southern Paiute partners to restore sacred springs and wetlands, with ranchers across southern Arizona on prescribed fires and wildfire mitigation, and he continues to train the next generation of practitioners for work in complex adaptive systems. David moved to Patagonia in 2012 to co-found the Borderlands Restoration Network, which brings together scientists, activists, and citizens working to create vibrant human and non-human communities in the borderlands of southern Arizona and northern Mexico. For the first part of the interview, we caught up with David in the Patagonia Town Park, where the ambient noise unfortunately proved a bit difficult to buffer. The second portion of the interview took place outside of Patagonia on the site of a bankrupt housing development project that the network purchased and is now working to restore as part of a larger wildlife corridor. So, David. Welcome to Journal of the Southwest Radio, thanks for talking with us. Thanks a lot, it's a a real pleasure to talk to you guys today. So I I have lots of questions for you about your work and what you've been doing down here. You've been down in Patagonia for a few years now and overall for many years in Southern Arizona. From the time that you were working on your PhD dissertation research in Arabaca, now leading you into working for Borderlands Restoration um, here in, in Patagonia. Can you kind of narrate the trajectory of all of that a little bit for us? And Sure. What, what is it that you're doing down here?
1: Sure, sure. Uh, from Aravaca, uh, where I was doing my PhD research on collaborative conservation and, and how different groups with different politics and different uh, values about the environment could work together, um, I had the opportunity to connect with some scientists um, and retirees in Patagonia, Arizona, uh, Gary Nabhan helped facilitate that uh, connection, and, and this group of people wanted to start an organization and sort of put our networks together and our expertise together to try to scale up the impact of, of habitat restoration uh, on degraded landscapes that have been threatened by fire and flood over time and now have uh, a very important uh, social dimension to them because it is the U.S.-Mexico borderlands. So we decided that we wanted to get together and, and focus on the basics of habitat restoration from uh, keeping soils and organic matter and plants, native plants, intact to uh, helping grow out native plants that aren't available commercially but are very important for pollinators and migratory pollinators especially and to try to connect people to this kind of work and help them create jobs around it and just more of a a restoration economy kind of approach to um, making this work normalized and and something that uh, is done day in day out in the Borderlands region while you know, we we provide sort of a, a template for people to uh, engage with ecosystem services type pieces, and then social type aspects of the work at the same time.
0: Mm-hmm. What is a rest- restoration e- economy?
1: Restoration mean? economy is not a term that we came up on our own, but and it's one that that people still try to define. But I think it's a good one. It it, it sort of serves to encapsulate the idea that that. Habitat restoration work is directly connected to human health and, and livelihoods, and that people can actually make a living uh, caring for the places that they live. Uh, that's often the way that we we formulated ourselves. So we'd like to encourage people to to think about going into just about any aspect of human endeavor, but with the idea that what they're contributing to is is maintaining or enhancing and improving um, ecosystem health, and that can be water quality and quantity or migratory pollinators and birds and others that that move through an area. Um, But the the idea that people can be lawyers and bookkeepers or ecologists, anthropologists, and contribute to the region in many, many different ways would all be kind of uh, part of a larger network and a larger kind of pulling in the same direction to improve quality of life for living and non-living things, I think.
0: (laughs) It's a pretty fascinating concept when you think about it. I've been thinking a lot about how uh, me and I mean I'm sure many so many of us are, constantly thinking about and worried about the ways that we live out of integrity with the places that we're rooted in, mm-hmm. and I think that's such a tricky question in this moment especially because our lives are so plugged into global networks and we're so beholden to those networks for what we consume, you know the food that we eat, uh, you know the energy that we use, right? Transpose so. I guess this is kind of more of a comment on what you're doing, but there's kind of a question here too that you know seems like how it seems like the the uh, restoration economy idea in a way kind of ties into that, that question.
1: I think so. I think I think it's a kind of a term that's worth exploring and keeping maybe not very carefully or clearly defined, keeping it open like a, a working uh, a working term, mm-hmm. uh, but. It's it's the idea, I think, that, that this kind of work um, could be n- normalized and more sort of just a way of doing business for local, state, you know, federal governments. Uh, I think, in terms of, of the way that uh, the U.S. government fights forest fires and uh, battles those, and people don't often question that. Millions and millions of dollars flow to, to stopping fires for pretty obvious reasons. Uh, it just seems that, you know, if we want to do post fire rehabilitation to protect watersheds, which protect drinking water, you know, quality and quantity for downstream towns, for example, um, this could be the kind of work that is so automatic, it's so much a part of, you know, our culture and the fabric of what we do day in and day out, whether you're a lawyer or a bookkeeper or an ecologist or a retiree or what have you, that that this kind of work would, it would just be a question of where we do the work, where the greatest emergency is, and not a matter of fighting for scant funds mm-hmm. to get the work done in the first place. So. Mm-hmm. A lot of what we do is sort of um, hopefully practicing what we preach and demonstrating that this kind of work has an impact not only on the ground, where you can see habitat improve, you can see a greater diversity of of plant species and animal species after we've done our our work uh, with erosion control and planting and that kind of stuff. But you get the feedback from the people who actually do the work who are often, often surprised by how it makes them feel Mm -hmm. to, to connect actually building things with their hands uh, with hand tools with what is often uh, very minimal low-tech kinds of efforts but very extensive and broad across the landscape so that we you know we're building thousands and thousands of rock and wood structures to keep moisture on the ground and to um, keep things intact but we're also sort of running hundreds and hundreds of people through our programs on these active work sites and that includes youth programs and local communities uh, a lot of a lot of uh, teenagers who have never had a job before, and so they've got to apply for a job. And and we sort of just demonstrate, you know, what's possible and give them an opportunity to connect. Uh, Not all of them are interested in the work, but there again, we're trying to make sure that they understand that, you know, we need people to keep our books and to, you know, um, help us take care of our buildings and all of that. That can all be part of the restoration economy too. And of course, yeah, we all drive trucks and we use metal and wood tools. So we're not automatically against you know, what could be called an extractive economy, but um, we do think there's a a really large opening and a need for a a non-extractive economy that's not necessarily against anything, such as mining and that kind of thing automatically, but we want to be very, very much pro-environment, so to speak, and uh, pro-creating opportunities for people to engage at whatever level they want. Including whether they want to connect with us and get a master's degree or finish a paper for a class or a PhD or like our, uh, like our very active volunteers uh, in Patagonia who are always looking for ways to contribute and, and make the place better and to celebrate it at the same time. That mm-hmm. this is worth doing. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. So, in a way, there's kind of a you've got the restoration ecology, but there are all kinds of I guess you'd call them moral, ethical dimensions to the work. And also, a, it seems like from what you're saying, a big emotional. Um, dimension as well. Mm-hmm. Is that? Can you talk a bit more about that?
1: It's true, and that continues to surprise me when I have uh, people out. You know, when they're they're young people who will reflect on the work at the end of the summer, and they'll say things like, "You know, I didn't realize that I could bring a river back. You know, I didn't realize that I could help plants grow just by you know having doing a few tweaks on the landscape." or a group of inmates that I worked with that had pretty bad attitudes in the first few days of our work, but once they saw the effects of it after the rains had come and they saw sediment build up and they saw that their structures were intact, they were in and they were excited. And you could barely stop these guys from gearing up and, and running out into the field to see how their structures had held up after a big rainstorm. And that's something that you know some of our people have called sweat equity, where people They really do sweat and bleed sometimes and uh, cry and laugh and and share food and all the rest right on sites where they've built something and they've done it together rather than as individuals. And, you know, frankly, not mediated by digital devices, uh, except to the extent that those devices can help us do our work or or celebrate it and get the word out. But um, there might be a a need and an opening for people to connect in really physical ways, you know, just because of who we are as, as biological, you know, beings uh, that can connect with inanimate objects and manipulate them and move them around and have effects, you know, far beyond the the microsite so that you could scale way, way up and look at this as something that happens across hundreds and thousands of square miles and acres or scale right down to a single structure that somebody walks up to and sees, wow, that that did work. I doubted it, but boy, that that did exactly what you said it was going to do. That's very gratifying. Yeah.
0: No kidding. Yeah, I was thinking as you're talking, I just kept thinking about, you know, the the ways that our it, that we're so alienated from our surroundings in this moment, and I mean, obviously, prisoners are an, an extreme example of that alienation, and sure. uh, you know, an expression of a kind of a way maybe an expression of the way that alienation is just such a fundamental almost assumed part of our society you know that we we just assume that we're going to be um, compartmentalized in what we do we were specialized specialists in this or that right. and we identify that way but there's a you know there's a big price to pay for that uh, what both alienation and hyper mediation it just seems like there's a real need for us to um, you know to touch the earth or to to you know get a sense of those roots that we have
1: there could be yeah and and some of the most basic fundamental stories maybe that we think we've already told or we've told so many times that it gets kind of exhausting uh, maybe those kinds of stories are worth telling over and over again you know to to make sure that people realize that this kind of work is being done and it does have effects and you know some of the most gratifying work that I've done is as I said, with, with people who actually build things and see that it works or, or grow plants or get seeds to germinate that they didn't think they could germinate. But also people who don't work in this environment or this part of the country who you know know us and love us and they'll tell me that they're very happy that we're doing this work even though they don't want to do it themselves. They're very happy that someone's doing it. They're very happy that someone is holding something intact you know, and providing opportunities for people to learn uh, that it's going on. Um, so yeah, maybe those kinds of stories need to be told over and over again, really fundamental stories that, that, uh, that help, yeah, counteract, uh, some of the, 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 negative stories and the doom and gloom stories that are, just seem to be so prevalent, you know, that make people, I think kind of hopeless yeah. and, and they, you know, it's been said over and over again, but I, I get the feeling that people can kind of shut down, you know, when they don't feel like they can do much good and, yeah. um, maybe it's a natural tendency for us to just sort of take care of our own pile of stuff you know and hope for the best Mm -hmm. and it doesn't have to be that way so it might be that it it is the fact that even in our work you know we require the work of specialists like hydrologists Mm -hmm. and ecologists and an expert on ants and you know all of this stuff can constantly inform our work but we need connectors too we need bridge builders and we need the what I laugh about uh being the old graduate student model where you know you're probably not going to get through if you don't do a lot of hustling. Right, right?
0: Right, yeah, Everyone
1: else yeah. can be their specialist, but you better make the connections. You know, mm-hmm. if you want to get funded, if you want to get through it, all the rest. It's, it's very, very fundamental. But uh, yeah, we need the people who show up at those meetings and over and over and over again. And we need the, the people who can work interdisciplinary mm-hmm. uh, across disciplines and connect people and, and be maybe they're experts in cross disciplinary work. Right? Maybe that's their expertise. Um, and just helping make sure that everyone is uh, able to make their contribution and they can specialize in whatever they like.
0: All that kind of leads me to ask you, how do you see your work? Are you Do you see yourself as a connector in that same, in that kind of vein? Or
1: Definitely. Yeah, I definitely do. I think, you know, just the discipline of anthropology helped me put a framework around that and, and gave me some tools, you know, right down to how to conduct interviews. And, but mostly it just alerted me to something that I, I think I already knew or was attracted to anyway. It's just the fact that, um, it, you know, there can be sort of an open-ended, not very discreet um, way of going about that work that, that is a matter of, of constantly connecting people and seeing where their interests overlap, uh, including when they perhaps don't agree on politics at all, but they do agree on the fact that water is important, whether you're growing grass for cattle or you are you want water intact for, um, for a town, or you want pools of water available for endangered species that are migrating through, right? If everyone can sort of, you know, collapse down on those areas of overlap, sort of Venn diagram style, then I think we find in those, those Venn diagram overlaps, a lot of places for overlap, overlap, a lot of places for work that can get done, Mm -hmm. uh, sort of in spite of ourselves sometimes in spite of our, some of our worst tendencies, which are normal and natural and understandable, but, uh. Yeah, there's there's room for more for sure. There's room for for someone to be a, a connector and to um, constantly be communicating among different people and making sure that they know that they've got a contribution to make as a USGS hydrologist or what have you, mm-hmm. which furthers their goals because they need to write papers and, and fund themselves. So it's it's a win-win I think in a lot of different ways. And it's it's not the kind of work that's attractive to everyone, sure. but it's just it's really really important uh, because. People aren't likely to beat your door down, you know, with, with offers of lots of funding or opportunities. You kind of have to create them mm-hmm. yourself, you know. You need to go to those rancher meetings and make sure that they know that, you know, you're here for, for improving habitat. Mm-hmm. And when you can get Fish and Wildlife Service uh, to put their money on a private land ranch because they share values, well, something's happened then, as mm-hmm. opposed to stopping at that fence line, which is, is so easy to do. Mm-hmm and so well within everybody's job description if they've got if they're in charge of a certain piece as a manager or a landowner or a district forester um they do kind of have to stop at the fence line we like to be the group that can help people work beyond the fence lines or kind of yeah be sort of a boundary organization in that way
0: well if you're looking at a landscape as a you know a totality of a lot of intersecting processes and things objects and beings you know human and non-human yeah um you can't help but to connect you have to look at the at the connection the same would be at a, you know at the level of a broader region i guess or and that's one thing i noticed that um I, I've, I've just seen as you know i've been following your work for a pretty long time because i'm a fan <laughs> and also um, from being on your dissertation committee i sure. just remember the way that you put a lot of disparate processes together um, in that analysis, I thought mm. was done in a very, in a very clever way, and, and I know it's not easy to do, but mm. I can see how you're still kind of doing that and this, that continues on in this work.
1: Yeah, I appreciate that very much. That was a, um, sort of an opportunity that presented itself relentlessly as I was living and working in Aravaca and working you know, with ranchers and, and wildlife refuge managers that um, almost took pleasure, I think, in not getting along and, and not being in the same room, frankly. Um, left over from what were called the range wars, when uh, people had pretty strong opinions about what should be done on, on the land, in, in spite of the things that they agreed on. Uh, they weren't really interested in, in tending to those things. So as, I, you know, as that work was going on during my PhD dissertation, I was just overcome like so many people were, all people who worked in the Altar Valley by just the number of people moving through the landscape and trying to, you know, seeking better things and, and putting their lives at risk. Uh, in doing so and moving across the landscape. And, um, that was the relentless kind of piece that that I eventually had to turn to and wanted to talk about people's experiences of living in rural areas along the border and and how they accommodated in their daily lives as biologists or ranchers or wildlife refuge managers, this this steady stream of, of travelers moving north and, and leaving signs behind, leaving objects on the landscape that um, someone like me was very fascinated to be amidst but um, they just wouldn't go away so I felt it was necessary to kind of turn to those objects on the ground and and let them resonate in the way that they do for everybody who who lives in such a place that it just changes constantly by day by night. Uh, That happened to be a time around 2007-2008 where I guess they call it now the surge of people coming you know north uh, was happening and I walked right into that looking to count grasses and build erosion control structures and see why people weren't getting along and see if they could get along. and um, So that resulted in a chapter in a book, but this other piece, you know, the the other piece of, of all the, the tragedy and hope and beauty and everything swirling around me demanded attention. So I, I kind of turned to that, and thankfully people like you and my dissertation committee uh, welcomed that.
0: <laughs> so. so David, we're out here on the outskirts of Patagonia, and we're looking at some of the Uh, project area or one of the project areas that borderlands restoration network has uh, has been working on for some time and uh, we're looking south we're actually sitting on the back of a u of a on the tailgate of a u of a vehicle and we're looking south here it's beautiful after it's a beautiful morning it's so green out here it looks like it's been raining quite a bit that's
1: incredible yeah yeah Uh, plenty plenty of rain uh, out here and everything responds right away there's really high density and all the various colors of green you can imagine.
0: And what are we, we're sitting in the midst of what looks to be uh, uh, some kind of housing development, but there's nothing really developed out here. Can you tell us a little bit more about this?
1: Sure, yeah, this is part of uh, Borderlands Restoration Network's story of um, not only connecting different individuals with different capacities but also different organizations and in this case a group of us got together and started an organization called Wildlife Corridors LLC specifically to protect this uh, wildlife corridor that had been designated uh, I believe in 2006 or 8 by Northern Arizona University and Arizona Game and Fish as one of the most important wildlife corridors in uh, the southwestern U.S. That attracted the attention of developers who wanted to put 200 houses out here over the um, spread of about 1,500 acres of really prime habitat, incredibly beautiful, and they went bankrupt before they could actually get houses on the ground, but there are remnant roads and a little bit of an electrical system and water system, so we got uh, people together, created that organization to purchase the property from the bank. Yeah, we were able to buy the whole property from the bank, and they were very glad to get rid of it at at a discounted price. And the idea was that we uh, would preserve it as a wildlife corridor and um, keep it open for movement of a number of species, including probably the jaguar that uh, has been cited documented in the Santa Rita Mountains. So that's exciting for, for lots of people. Um, and, yeah, to just sell a few lots, uh, maybe in the south end to pay off the mortgage and have tiny houses out here, but to keep the rest of the corridor intact for uh, conservation purposes but also to do restoration on the property because it had been abandoned so long Uh, there's a lot of bare dirt areas and um, a lot of negative effects of roads are in the northern end of it and so we've been uh, uh, writing grants to get money to do restoration projects and then use the entire effort uh, protecting the corridor through conservation and then doing restoration on the actual on the ground itself as uh, kind of just a big platform for education and demonstrating what people can do and and how different agencies can fund work that that they're required to fund uh, so we kind of make it easy for them to bring the money out here and then we bring youth and and others from the local communities out here and employ people to to take care of this place and stabilize it and and learn from it and then enjoy it too at the same time so always trying to accommodate that mixed use kind of approach that it has to include recreation and dog walking and you know those kinds of things, uh, but to ask people to participate in that management and, and help us do the work, it's, it's got a lot of people in the community very excited about volunteering, and that's our lifeblood as an mm-hmm. organization. Um, and it's also very important to you know, Borderlands Restoration Network to, to, to be a, a networking organization for individuals, but also for organizations that exist now or that might start up in the future. Um, such as one of our partners, Deep Dirt Farm, just down the hill over here, uh, has greenhouses where uh, women's empowerment events go on, uh, or they grow food and do erosion control. And that's a separate nonprofit entity, but it's taking advantage of Borderlands Restoration Network structure and our admin structure to facilitate grant writing and grant administration and all those kinds of things that people who want to work in the dirt uh, don't want to mess with.
0: Nice. What, uh, can you tell me why this, uh, what is it that makes this place so ecologically diverse?
1: Yeah, it happens to be, the uh, diverse. yeah, the, the biodiversity here, I guess, is, is off the charts in terms of uh, the number of species, the density and diversity both, but also threatened and endangered species because it tends to be at the margins of a number of different uh, mountain ranges coming from the south, uh, Sierra Madre Occidental, the Rocky Mountains from the north, Chihuahuan Desert, from the east and the Sonoran Desert from the west. And we're also at right here in Patagonia at an elevation of about 4,000 feet. So you tend to get that vertical uh, sort of crossover as well from species that exist at, at higher elevations that come down as low as, as this and, and the species that are at lower elevations that creep up into the upper ends of their range. So it's sort of a middle ground where lots of things uh, cross over, uh, including you know people coming north looking for better opportunities and uh, mm-hmm. organizations in Patagonia that want to help them at the border and make sure they're healthy and, and safe in response to some of the negative, uh, negative effects of, of those attempts to cross and, and to move across the landscape.
0: So you, there are a lot of flows that are yeah. tied to and affecting this landscape?
1: Yeah, it's a good way to put it. And uh, in a lot of cases, even ecologically or hydrologically, you know, there are organizations that are have a mandate to um, take care of Arizona's waters or take care of U.S. waters. And uh, we want to be the kind of organization that can um, help maintain water quality and quantity and, and help maintain, you know, human quality of life and, and interaction across cultures and across borders as best we can, kind of all at the same time. Um, the idea that we can, we can sort of be a kind of a platform or a, an attachment point for a number of different interests that are all really kind of about caretaking Amidst these flows and and keeping the processes that we need to be intact intact, um, nudging them in the right direction if they're if they're getting out of whack, such as down cutting too far um, from from water being destructive and making it more productive on the ground, or yeah, people uh, people being abused or treated badly, you know, and during their attempts to cross. Uh, mm-hmm. So yeah, a number of organizations sort of mix and, and just keep in touch one, with one another on on those fronts mm-hmm. while. Yeah, these flows are all around us all the time. uh
0: It's you've mentioned fire a couple of times and the importance of fire for for these. So, would this be considered Sonoran upland? Uh, so yeah, a Sonoran upland landscape. Yeah, yeah, uh,
1: semi-desert grassland. It's often called, but yeah, the word desert is in there for a very good reason. Um, lots of mesquite trees, and uh, there's border patrol now coming into our private property just to have a look.
0: Is that pretty typical?
1: It's very, very typical. Yeah, and we don't have any issues with them, but. Um, they don't ask permission either. Um, the, all the trash you see around you, I can guarantee you, is from border patrol vehicles uh, sitting up here on watch for, I'm not sure what, but.
0: Um, it looks like it could be actually a good place to watch because it's high. Yeah. And you have a commanding view of, well, you have basically have a 360 degree view.
1: Sure. Yeah, we do see evidence of, of migrants out here. Uh, nothing like, you know, you would see in aravaca and some of those more open areas that aren't you know blocked by large mountain ranges that are difficult to cross but you don't have to go very far outside of patagonia until you start to find people and, and evidence of people moving across the landscape yeah looking for uh for better ways to be in place
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. do you have anything else that you uh would like to to tell us about stuff that we've maybe forgotten to ask you about or
1: we were thinking about uh, the effects of fire on a landscape oh, like yes. this. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah these are um,
0: so interrupted by the Border Patrol. <laughs> right. So
1: many other places, you know, uh, the, the grasslands have adapted with fire, and fire is a very good um, sort of feature uh, to have on the ground to regenerate grasses and trees and such. And like a lot of other places in the U.S. and the world, uh, fire suppression has interrupted uh, the natural cycle of fire and it's uh, encouraged invasive species and it's helped to squash. Uh, native species that are very important to intact uh, ecosystems. So what often happens now is that fires can be very destructive because uh, here in the southwest fires are often followed by floods which can flush organic matter and intact soils which are very thin right out of a system and leave it unable to recover, uh, leave the seed bank compromised and gone. So that's a big part of what Borderlands Restoration can do is to come in after a fire even a natural lightning strike, and put down erosion control structures that keep hydrology and soils intact. And um, I think one of the things we'd like to do is be kind of a hotshot crew of restoration, uh, if we can, and and have other organizations be the same kind of go-to organization that uh, the Forest Service or whatever form of government calls on to hustle out and and build things uh, right after a fire before the landscape unravels and and gets worse because these things don't tend to, to heal on their own. Um, but fire naturally is very much a concern as people move into these areas and they want to build houses in beautiful places like this wildlife corridor and mm-hmm. to uh, then protect their homes. And they want agencies and professionals to protect them um, from fire. Uh, so there's, yeah, that, that can be a pretty hot uh, political debate uh, about whether or not to put fire on the landscape and how expensive it is and what to let burn, when and where. Uh, I suspect that'll be a, a really big topic for for politics and management, whether anyone likes it or not, mm-hmm. into the future. Yeah,
0: ha- are there examples of hotshot restoration crews in the world? Is that is that actually is that a thing?
1: Not that I know of. No. Mm-hmm. Um, even it, in my early days of this work, I was embarrassingly uh, shocked to learn that uh, in Mexico, there just aren't the the firefighting type crews that we have in the U.S. It's just a, a different approach and a different uh, way to to manage money in places, and um, you know. For all we know today, uh, the U.S.-United States ecosystems could be a lot healthier if we didn't have people constantly fighting these fires and spending millions and millions of dollars. Um, but no, I don't know of anything like that. Um, it tends to be very expensive to fight fires. We do have in the U.S. you know very organized uh, what are called burned area uh, recovery teams um, that go out and assess post-fire uh, what could be done. And, and small efforts are made to reseed or to do a little bit of erosion control, but there again... It, um, most people will agree that, that that whole system needs a lot of work. It, it needs more uh, eyes on it. It needs more funding. It needs to be taken more seriously because a lot of the work that's done washes away immediately, uh, maybe because it's not targeted as well as it could be and uh, maybe just doesn't get enough emphasis. Uh, the, the fighting the fire and putting it out is always the emphasis, and then if there's a little bit of money to do any restoration or to keep things intact, well, that's great, but it, often there's
0: not. Mm-hmm. So. Do you feel that that is uh, starting to change that, that there's more, it seems like there's more recognition of I, the role of fire in landscapes and we're taking it seriously.
1: Yeah, I think so. It, it, yeah, it's really gratifying even to have worked in Arivaca out in the, the Altar Valley with, um, you know, high-powered funders, foundations, and and government groups that uh, were interested in getting such a good read on the landscape and doing so much planning that people could literally pick up the phone if there was a lightning strike or even a a human-caused fire and agree that they were going to let it burn to a certain point because it had already been incorporated into the management plan that this place does need to burn in order to regenerate and to not grow so much, um, you know, with vegetation that it becomes a dangerous fire or a soil... Uh, stabilizing fire. Um, fire ecologists will tell you today that we're seeing fire behaviors that have never been recorded in human history. And that's fascinating for scientists, but it should scare the hell out of a lot of other people because uh, there's no sign that, that that's going to abate. And I think we're just going to continue seeing uh, behaviors and, and system changes that um, mm-hmm. that we've just never seen before. So mm-hmm. getting out in front of that and trying to create some resilience you know, building rock structures in a place that might burn or that we we're concerned about could be a really important way to um, to hedge our bets or to, to create resiliency before it's it's too late. Before we it's yeah something that we wish we had done. And why not direct funds to actually create jobs around doing that work? Mm-hmm. You know.
0: And are you actively? Um, working with this land terraforming this landscape are you doing some things in this this area that we're sitting in the midst of here
1: we are for sure Uh, just the lack of maintenance the lack of eyes on the ground are really apparent out here because there were a few ponds dug that never got developed into ponds we're going to rehab those now for endangered species refuge uh, for for small fish which is really fun and gratifying gets a lot of people excited. A lot of berms that were put up to protect areas have breached, and so they have created uh, destruction and erosion that that we know we can fix. But it's a really, really clear example of just not having people caring for a place day in and day out, of not maintaining it, of not having their eyes on the ground in exactly the same way you would in your front yard or your backyard, where putting a little bit of effort, a little bit of money and time into repairing something today is going to save you a lot of time and money into the future. So we're the ones who kind of enter the landscape that's been slightly compromised, and the time to, to do those repairs is right now. And mm-hmm. it's great to see that a lot of um, state and federal agencies recognize that. It's just a matter of us, you know, writing the grants and attracting the funders here to to get the work done. Um, but when you you know you start talking about doing that work that everyone believes in, and creating jobs for teenagers who have never had jobs, and providing volunteer opportunities for very active, intelligent people out of the corporate world and encouraging you know people to buy backhoes or to to invest in tools that they know are going to be employed in active projects then you've i think you've really got something going um it's it's exciting for example to hear a, a backhoe operator come to me over and over again asking if i have any more restoration projects to do because he's very intrigued with how the water moves and how he can use his machine to to make this system better again it's another one of those unintended unexpected consequences, but, you know, this was a man in Arivaca who was very happy to push dirt and dig wherever you wanted and very happy to be paid to do that. Well, I started talking to him about stream restoration and the techniques and the way to read the landscape and how, what our inputs are like and we don't want to be too aggressive, but let's tweak here and here and here. And he caught on to it immediately. Like that's just got his mind spinning and mm-hmm. it's very, very simple, but um, th- to do that kind of thing and get people hooked in in that way is just, is just not very difficult if you can open up those spaces and have those projects, like I talked about, that are constant and rolling over and over and over throughout the landscape from design to planning to actual installation, then you've got a number of, of points at which people can attach on um, for, and reach their own goals I think along the way. So that's yeah, it's really, really gratifying and exciting.